I don't know if you had the same experience as me, but I remember when I found out that the truth, the, the tooth fairy wasn't what, you know, the tooth fairy was supposed to be. Um, my mom and my stepdad, I, I woke up and they were, they were walking into my room and putting the quarter underneath my pillow as they swiped the old, the old tooth, which, uh, and I was okay with that. By the way, the inflation has gone up considerably on the price of a tooth. It's like five bucks a tooth now. Um, Anyway, I also remember, that wasn't that big of a deal. I also remember when I found out that Santa Claus wasn't really on the up and up. You know, it wasn't, that was kind of, you know, I woke up on one Christmas Eve and I saw my mom and my stepdad eating the cookies that I had put out for him, which, first of all, I thought that was incredibly rude. Uh, but anyway, so then we talked and they, they told me that, that they, they admitted the truth, which, you know, that, the, that whole thing, although you've never seen a sadder 15-year-old than that day, I'll tell you that much. Um, but I'll tell you the one that really bothered me. That didn't even bother me that much. The one that really, really, really bugged me was when I found out that wrestling wasn't real. Man, that messed me up. That messed me up for quite some time. Because the thing is, is that in my neighborhood where I grew up in, uh, in Brockton, Massachusetts, uh, which is a suburb of, of Boston, um, I mean, I was like one, I'm not even kidding though, I was one of the last people to find out that wrestling wasn't real. All of my friends would try to tell me that wrestling wasn't real. Like they'd be like, listen, Bob or Rob, they call me there, Robbie. They'd say, um, wrestling isn't real. I'd say, you're not real. <laughs> listen, wrestling is fake. I'd be like, you're fake. What do you think of that? Uh, of course, wrestling is real. You know, and, and now I, I will admit, I, I grew up, now some of you didn't even know that. Your world is being rocked right now, even as I speak. Uh, but I, like I grew up and I think the best era to like, to like be a kid and like wrestling, like in the 80s. Uh, so I grew up in the era of like Jimmy Superfly Snooker, uh, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Iron Sheik, Junkyard Dog, Rowdy Roddy Piper. I could go on, uh, but I won't. Uh, but I mean, that was just a, such a great time in, in wrestling. In fact, I remember my, my brother, my stepbrother and I, um, scrounging up, like doing all these odd jobs and lawn work and all this to scrounge up 20 bucks so that our, uh, our, 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 uh, our parents could get us um, the first WrestleMania on on pay per view, and uh, and I remember I remember that so vividly. Um, and uh, I think they're up to like WrestleMania 90 now, but back then it was just it was the, it was the first one. Um, but I, and honestly, I, I don't know what it is totally. Um, but there was something about me that connected with wrestling, with pro wrestling. I, I, I don't think it was uh, these grown men wearing tights, but I I do think it was that there was stuff that I wrestled with too. And um, because there's stuff that all of us wrestle with, there's stuff that we wrestle with people whose personalities conflict with ours. Um, we, we wrestle with decisions that we want to make and we're not really sure what, what to what to do. We wrestle with this. And this is what I want to spend our time talking about. We wrestle with how to turn a vision into reality, because there's a big difference with vision and having a dream. Because really, um, a vision without a plan is simply a dream. And lots of people have dreams. People fantasize about landing their dream job, living in their dream house, taking their dream vacation and marrying their dream girl. But listen, nothing wrong with dreams. But, it, it, but it's easy to get stuck there where you're just kind of thinking, pie in the sky, uh, someday my ship is going to come in and that everything's going to kind of happen to us as opposed to our active involvement in seeing a vision become reality. And see, vision is very different in some ways than, than dreams, because vision is a dream with a deadline. 
Uh, it's a dream that has a strategic set of goals and objectives attached to it. But the frustration is, and this is the frustration that you might have, the frustration that I have, is there's lots of talk about having dreams. There's even some talk about having vision, but very little talk about how to take, dream, how to take a vision and turn it into reality. You see, maybe you've had this experience. Um, you're watching TV, and you see a commercial for something, and you say, Hey, I thought of that like five years ago. Right? Anybody have that experience? Right? Okay, six of us. Great. Um, I've had that experience several times. I'm always coming up with crazy ideas. Um, and, you know, and I remember, like, I had this, inc- this is a million dollar idea that I'm going to share with you right now. But check this out. Like, I had this idea for what happens to people post-Thanksgiving. So let's say you're at Thanksgiving, and you have, you know, you're after your third plate of food, which is larger than your head. Um, you're like, oh, I'm so full. And, you know, what you want to do is, you know, create some room by, you know, like unbuckling your, your, the button on your pants. But apparently doing that in someone else's house is considered socially awkward, okay? And uh, so you, you don't want to do that, but so I came up with this invention. The invention is, is that you would buy a piece of material to whatever, you know, size kind of works for you, and it would have a button on one end and then an opening in the other end, and it would be the exact color of whatever pants that you're wearing to Thanksgiving or whatever other event. And so then, if you're like, oh, I need to create some room, but I don't want to just unbuckle my pants because that's weird, you could actually use this little, like, pant waist extender, um, and and then you could just discreetly put that on and add, you know, like a couple extra inches to there and just like, oh, I feel so much better now. And uh, so this is a brilliant idea until I walked into a store a couple of years ago and saw it. I, I, seriously, I was there. I was with a couple of my friends and they'll tell you the story, too. I was asking the guy questions or as they like to tell the story, I started interrogating the guy and like as to where he got this idea and that he was stealing my proprietary information. Uh, and, and I was getting real. I was getting real serious about it. And then they, they you know, carried me out. Um, but uh, <laughs> now here. But here's the here's the thing. Right. The thing is, is that I had a dream. Somebody else had vision and they said, I've got this idea for a button and opening in gene material. How do we take that and turn it into something? And, and listen, my dream got me to start talking, but somebody else's vision got it to act and that vision turned into a reality. And so what I want to spend our time talking about uh, this, the, this afternoon now is how do we move from simply being dreamers? Nothing wrong with being a dreamer. But what, 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 how do we move from simply being a dreamer to now being to an, something else, what I believe is a step above that, which is a person who is visionary? Um, the character that we're studying, the story that we're reading, in the story of Nehemiah, he not only dreamed of the walls of Jerusalem being rebuilt, he was visionary enough to put a plan in place. A plan that, listen, amazingly enough, is not just good for him, but can work for us as well. As we look at, really, the three, three essentials, for turning vision into reality. So I'd invite you now to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2, which is where we're going to begin in verse 1. It says this. It says, It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in the king's presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may, and I, so I, said to the, I said to the king, may the king live forever. For why should my face not be sad when my city 
The city of my father's tombs lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. And then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if, I found, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now if you pause there and give me your attention, once again, three essentials to turning vision to reality. Here's number one if you're taking notes, and that is to look for divine appointments. What do I mean by that, divine appointments? A divine appointment is when God orchestrates a situation or circumstance in such a way that there is no way that we would be able to, 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 to um, recognize that it's anyone other than Him. So, once again, it's when He orchestrates something to what we look at and we say, man, this can only be God who put this together. Well, my wife and I were praying about um, coming to start this church 11 years ago. Um, we hadn't told a soul about what we were praying about. We had not told one person. And um, what's interesting is, is that I remember talking to my wife and I said to her, I said, I think God is calling us um, to come to this area and, and, and start a church. I said, but let's just pray and fast and see what, see what God does. And so um, we, we, we decided to do it, uh, to, to pray and fast. The next day, I got an email forwarded to me from, uh, I was serving as an assistant pastor, from our senior pastor who had forwarded me an email and it was from a guy that lives in this area, and, um, or just a hair south of here. And uh, he sent it to my pastor and said, and the email was basically this, hey, you know, love the church, but would you, would you think that one of your assistant pastors would be willing to, um, to, leave, where, to leave here and, and start a church here in this area? And so he forwarded me the email, my pastor forwarded me the email, and, just, and all it said was, um, hey, why don't you pray about this? And, uh, and I'm telling you, I got that email the, like the day after my wife and I had said, we feel like God's calling us to come here and start a church, and we hadn't told anybody. And then we happened to get the email right on that same day. Now, once again, sometimes you get emails, and an email is an email, but at a certain time, an email is like everything. Because, I mean, I remember I got that email, and I printed it out, and it was like I was holding Scripture itself. And I was like, oh, it was a big deal for us. It was a big deal. Because and I t- I'm telling you, people sometimes will say, I wish God would send me an email and tell me what to do. Listen, God has sent me an email before, and it was awesome. Anyway, um, now, now here's the thing. I couldn't have put that together. I couldn't have put that together. That was God divinely allowing things to transpire at just the right time so that we would start moving in His direction. Now, let me qualify this as we, before, we, before we go on, and that is don't sit around waiting for God to send you an email. Like, well, I got this idea, but I'm just going to check the inbox a few thousand more times, see what happens. Um, the principle is that we need to be on the lookout for what God is up to. Because the goal isn't necessarily for God to bless our plans, per se. It's for us to know what it is that God is up to and for us to join Him in what it is that He's doing. Because divine appointments aren't necessarily what get us to move. They will confirm what we're doing along the way. Now, we have to understand something with the exchange that Nehemiah has with the king um, that's, that's important for us to note. And last time, if you were here last time, I talked about the, um, um, the, the fact that uh, Nehemiah, in the last verse of chapter 1, he says, For I was the king's cupbearer. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to punt that until this week till we have some real time to really unpack it. Because that's hugely important for the story that we're going to read. Now, so what, was, what did it mean to be the cupbearer for the king? That meant uh, several things, but one of the things that it meant is is that whenever the king was going to drink something or eat something, 
um, the cupbearer would drink it first, and then uh, he'd take the, the, the you know, cup or whatever, he would drink some. If he didn't fall down dead, that meant, well, it's not poisoned, it's okay for the king to drink it. The king was hungry, he'd get something to eat for the king, he'd take a bite of it. If it didn't, he didn't fall down dead, then all right, king, go for it. Which, really, I think about it, the weirdest thing about being king is that you've got to realize that you will never eat another sandwich without a bite taken out of it again. Um, so that's just, I guess, one of the occupational hazards of being king. But um, the, because of this, this position that the cupbearer had, the cupbearer was more than just the taste tester. The cupbearer became um, a type of bodyguard for the king. He became, because he was with the king wherever he went, he was a, uh, a, a, a counselor to the king, and he, he was a very trusted advisor to the king. And uh, because no one had more access to the king than the cupbearer. And so if we read that it's the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, it tells us that Nehemiah is a very, very faithful guy to the king. Because if someone wanted to kill the king, all they would have to do is get in cahoots with the cupbearer and then um, just give the king some bad stuff and he'd be dead and somebody else would, would take over. Now, but Nehemiah does something that is a cultural no-no in that culture, and that is that he was sad in the king's presence. Now, that might not seem that big a deal to us, but in ancient cultures, it was forbidden for a person to be sad in the presence of a king. And the idea was this, is that the king is so wonderful that to be in his presence, you would forget about all of your problems. And so to still be sad in the king's presence meant that it was, you know... Um, it was an insult to the king and that the king couldn't solve whatever difficulty you had. So that's why when the king says, hey, you seem, you seem sad, the, the next verse says this, says, so I became dreadfully afraid because being sad in the king's presence was a capital offense. But instead of saying off with his head, the king does something that's very uncharacteristic of kings. And he says, but what's wrong? You, you see, this is deep sorrow. What, tell me what's wrong. And this becomes the moment that changes Nehemiah's life. He's going to ask the king for something so huge that he's actually going to be amazed, I think, when, when the king actually says yes. Um, and, and here's the question. He's going to ask the king, uh, I know that I'm your trusted advisor, but I need you to give me a leave of absence. I also need you to write some letters and put your reputation on the line so that I can go back to my, uh, the, the, the hometown of my father's. I also need you, you're going to need to foot a humongous bill because um, I'm going to need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and I need you to pay for it, and, uh, which is what he's going to say in the next few verses. Um, but he's going to be amazed that he says yes. Now, the question that we have to ask is this. Um, why would the king allow, allow this? Why would he let his most trusted advisor go? Why would he pay to have a nation that was conquered by the previous ruling nation that he ended up conquering, why would he end up allowing their walls to be built up so they could start feeling national pride again to then perhaps even revolt against the king? I mean, it doesn't make any sense, right? Well, here's what we have to understand. King Artaxerxes, this, this king, his father, uh, his name was Xerxes, um, X-E-R-X-E-S. And Artaxerxes... Uh, who ruled before his son, had a wife uh, whose name was Vashti. Vashti, um, he cast out, and he decided to take another wife. Um, and there was this whole competition, and he picked another wife, and the girl who won was a Jewish girl by the name of Esther. And um, Esther became the stepmom of this same Artaxerxes that we're reading about. And so Artaxerxes now, over the course of his life, what does his stepmom teach him? 
His stepmom teaches him about God's people, about God's faithfulness to his people, about why they're in captivity to begin with. You see, it doesn't make sense that if you, if you remember the story that I told you last time about how the 70 years of captivity ended and then some people wanted to go back and rebuild the temple. And this king says, yeah, go ahead and go do it. And then this guy by the name of Ezra says, I want to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And this same king says, yeah, go ahead and do it. And now we get to Nehemiah and he says, I want to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he's like kind of nervous because that's why he says, so what is it that you desire? And then he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. So it's not even like, you know, he gets, you know, on his knees and he says, you know, like, oh, Lord, thou art starting. He pulls out his King James English. No, he just says, oh, God, please help me. Here we go. And this is that's like his little quick prayer that he prays before he tells the king. And there's all this going on. And he's like, well, how did this happen? It happened because it was a divine appointment. It was this moment where Nehemiah's uh, preparation and God's intervention intersected at that very moment. Nehemiah could not have predicted that over the last 30 years that, um, you know, that, that Esther would have been spending time investing in Artaxerxes as he was growing up, teaching him about the Jewish people. And now when he has an opportunity to bless them, he sends them and says, yeah, I'll pay for it. Yeah, I'll do all of this. Listen, I mean, how does that actually happen? That's just a divine appointment where God is just working things in such a way that we would just, we have to recognize that it's Him. And in the same way that it worked for Nehemiah is the same way that it works for you and me. Listen, our job is when God gives us a vision for, for what He wants us to do with our lives, it gets turned into reality. Um, when we just recognize the divine appointments, what are the doors that God is opening? And we simply walk through them. What we're, we're not trying to, our job is to try to not kind of make things happen. Our job, listen, is to be kind of like Bible CSI. You know, right? CSI, what do they do? They're looking for the fingerprints. We're looking for the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit to say, what is it that God, what, what is it that the door that God is opening? What do I see his fingerprints on? See, because I walked in and something happened and there was a conversation and we met and now, boom, something is, is taking place. And, 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 and how does that work? You see, no one makes good decisions by rushing into things. That's why one of the things that I wanted, I wanted you, I noted last time and I want you to note it again this time, is that he says it's in the month of Nisan. And if you go through, like in a Jewish calendar, this would be six months after he hears the news. Five to six months after. So, you know, almost half a year has gone by and Nehemiah is still praying and fasting and, and thinking through what would happen if God opened the door for me to do this. And listen, this is what the Bible says. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bibles in Second Chronicles chapter 16. It says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. It's amazing to me that God is like scanning humanity. And here's what he's looking for. He's looking for people whose hearts are loyal to him, that he might just do for them what they could never possibly do for themselves. And see, the thing that's amazing to me, the, these divine appointments, where God starts to kind of put things together in, in such a way that we, could not, we can't just deny that, hey, this is God that's, that's doing something, then we can know that God is preparing the way. But listen, it doesn't just stop there, because if we would say, well, then that's the case, I'll just sit on my hands and just wait for God to show up in my bedroom or something. But I want you to see something else, and look at um, verse 6 in the same chapter. It says this, then the king says, remember he asks the king the question, here's what the king says, verse 6, Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, 
How long will your journey be? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Therefore I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river. That would be the Euphrates, by the way. um, That they may permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gate of the citadel that pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the governors in, in the region beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me, and when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come seeking the well-being of the children of Israel. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Once again, if we're going to turn vision into reality, what do we do? The first thing is we look for divine appointments. The second thing that we do is devote yourself to strategic preparation. Strategic preparation. Listen, um, my... my We've, my family and I, we've been planning a vacation that we're taking now in a couple of weeks. But we've been planning this vacation for like four months. And it's, uh, it's, it, we're going to Disney World, which is kind of something that we do, for, you know, a few times, a couple times a year. And, um, but my daughter, when I told her that we were going to go to, to Disney World in, in October, um, I told her, I said, well, just, you know, write down all the things that you want to do. And so she starts writing down things. She wants, she wants to see princesses and she wants to ride these rides. But one of the things that she wrote was she wants to fight Darth Vader. And um, because she's seen the Jedi Training Academy and she's very excited that the kids get, you know, they get like the robe and then they get a um, they get a lightsaber and then they fight Darth Vader. And then if they if they don't turn to the dark side, um, they, they get a certificate that they're an official Padawan learner. So she's very excited about getting her hot little hands on, on that certificate. And so she's um, she, she's very excited about that. And then um, but but she. One of the things that we've been doing is we've been practicing um, uh, this this lightsaber fight, and she's been asking me, "Papi, help me with my lightsaber skills uh, in, in her own way." So you know, we she'll have you know we'll start kind of doing the duel, and um, and then I'll say, "Now remember, um, Darth Vader will try to get you to turn to the dark side." So I I try to convince her to turn to the dark side. Turn to the dark side, and you'll get cake. You know, no, I will never, you know, turn to the dark side and I'll buy you a car, you know, whatever. So I'm trying to get her to turn to the dark side. She won't turn to the, never, I'll never turn to the dark side. And then whenever I try to get her to turn to the dark side, she tries to hit me with the lightsaber. But I have amazing saber skills, so I'm able to fight her off. And, um, well, the other day, um, I, I was helping Carrie with something and I couldn't, I couldn't help her, you know, train, help train her. And so she takes um, one of the lightsabers and gives it to her brother, who's two and a half, who's two, two and a half. And um, and then she starts doing the lightsaber skills. She's like, I'll never turn to you, Darth Vader. And then she ends up whacking him on the head. Um, and uh, so Z- my son Xander comes running in um, and he's crying and he's got, you know, like a lightsaber injury. Um, and so I'm like, are you OK? And I'm like, it's all right, buddy. So I go see Mia and, um, and, and I'm like, what happened? She's like, well, you know, we were fighting and he tried to get me to turn to the dark side. I'm like, you do know your brother only says like 10 words. He's like, well, he wanted me to turn to the dark side. And so I said no, and then I defeated him. And I'm like, okay. Uh, and then this is where Carrie says, you know, you see, you can't play rough with them. And, you know, so anyway, so I said, all right, here's the, um, okay, um, Mia, your brother is not a bad guy, okay? He's two. He's not Darth Vader's brother 
or, you know, a Sith Lord. He's nothing, none of those things, you know. He's just a little kid trying to make his way in the universe, okay? And, uh, and so I'm, I'm explaining this to her, and I'm, and, and I'm like, you know, you need to say sorry to your brother that you hit him with a lightsaber and give him a hug and, and give him a kiss, tell him you love him and that you guys are friends. And so, and she was like kind of stalling on doing it. And I'm like, Mia, this is not a suggestion. Um, I need you to do this right now, or I'm going to make that lightsaber disappear, and you're never going to see the lightsaber again. And um, and then uh, this is a true story. Uh, this is you can ask my wife. This is a true story. And, and she says, um, I tell her that, and she she says, you don't want to make my lightsaber disappear. <laughs> it gets better. And she says, you want to let me do whatever I want. <laughs> Now, you know how, as, if you're a parent, you know that kids will sometimes, if you're kind of reprimanding them, they will do absolutely hilarious things, but because you're a parent and you have like a good center of gravity, you have the ability to hold in laughter when something, they do something that's absolutely hysterical. I was a little off that day because I just started laughing so hard. And I just said, you know, silly kid, Jedi mind tricks don't work on me. And, uh, and, and anyway, um, we got the thing worked out with her brother. Uh, but, but anyway, here's the point. My point is, my daughter is four. And she realizes that preparation is absolutely necessary if you want to be successful in something. She wants to fight Darth Vader, and she's like, I've got to be prepared to, to fight him. But, you know, I talk to people all the time. They want to start a business. And I'll say, okay, um, tell me some books that you've read on business. And, uh, you know, for the, in the field that you want to start or, you know, so what books have you read? Uh, none. Okay. Uh, let's just, you know, let's start there. Um, I'll talk to people who want to get married and, and, and I'll say, okay, have you signed up for premarital counseling? No. You plan on going to premarital counseling? Eh, do we need it? Well, you know, you do know that half of marriages, it doesn't quite work out, you know, so maybe a little bit of training on the front end might, might go a long way. Also, are there any books that you've read on, on marriage? And bridal magazines don't count. Um, and, uh, well, then, not including bridal magazines? Not including bridal magazines. How many? Uh, well, it's hovering right around zero. Okay, well, we need to work on that. Um, and, and listen, this is the thing that happens. Is sometimes, and like, we don't look at it this way, but here's what it is. Like, we want to have a successful career, relationship, children, future. You fill in the blank. But listen, but we're not preparing ourselves at all. But because we're Christians, here's what we'll do. We'll say this. Well, you know, I'm just trusting the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry. You see, I thought you had a rabbit's foot, but you're trusting the Lord. Oh, see, I, uh, okay. So, what, what? You see, because doesn't that sounds so spiritual? Well, are you doing this? Perfect? No, I'm, I'm trusting the Lord. Oh, well, because when and you see, you could it, it's because you know it's one or the other. You can either prepare. Or you can sit on the couch and watch Gilligan's Island re- reruns and, pr- and trust in the Lord. You see, because sometimes what we think is we'll just kind of like throw out Christian terms and think that that now releases us from all responsibility. Now, this is the thing that's important for us to note. And that is, um, if we really are trusting the Lord, we would be preparing ourselves for the moment when God opens the door so that our preparation will be at the same level as God's opportunity. You see, Nehemiah, if you, if you notice this, Nehemiah has months that go by. And you know what he's doing? Preparing himself. Do you think this list that he had, he just came up off the top of his head? You know, um, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go beyond the river Euphrates because I've already mapped out how I'm going to get from Persia to 
uh, Jerusalem. And then I'm going to need some letters from you. And then I'm going to need, oh, by the way, I need you to pay for this whole project. I need timbers because I'm going to need a place to live. I'm going to need to rebuild the citadel uh, of the temple. I'm going to need to rebuild. Listen, let's not be naive and think that he just came up with all of that while he was standing there. That he had five months to think through what would it take for me to, re- to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Listen, trusting the Lord means that we're waiting on God, that while we're waiting on God, we're preparing ourselves in the process. And that's what Nehemiah did. That's what Paul the Apostle did. He says, I didn't just go out and start preaching. He spent three and a half years preparing himself in the desert of Arabia. It's also, what did Jesus do with his disciples? Spent three and a half years doing what? Preparing them and training them for the ministry opportunity they'd spend the rest of their lives involved in. And, and, And the idea is this, is that when God gives you a vision before that vision becomes reality there's always a season of preparation so that uh, that our training that will will raise our skills to the level of the door that god is opening because listen there's nothing worse than god opening a door but us not being prepared and um you know and i recognize that i'm a little bit different than 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 most people because this is not the story that most people have when I was a Christian for about three weeks, um, I really felt God put it in my heart that I would be a teacher, a preacher, and, and a guy who would start a church from zero um, and, 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 watch it, and, and, and watch it grow. I, I really, um, at, and I, I knew nothing about any of those things, but I really believed that God had called me to do it. I'd been a Christian for about three weeks. I was 19 years old. And I remember telling my wife, we were dating at the time, and, I, and I, we had left a, a, a Bible study um, where our pastor was teaching, and I said, I really believe God's called me to do that. And she's like, what? You know, this is Mr. Took me five years to graduate high school guy talking. And uh, which, as I like to say, being a senior was the best two years of my life. Um, and so I, I and I I would and I said, yeah, I think that God that doesn't look that that to me doesn't look that hard. And uh, well, I, I learned a couple of things after that. Number one is it's a lot harder than it looks. Uh, and number two is the easier it looks, the it was a lot, you know, the, the harder the pastor prepared on the back end to make the presentation look look easier, but but God called me. I really believe that night um, to to be a pastor, but that didn't happen on a Wednesday. And like the next Friday, I was moving here. God called me, um, and there were times that I even questioned that because I was a musician and I thought, well, I'm, music is really what I'm going to do, and I'm not really sure what happened that night. But um, but listen, there was more than nine years of preparation. For then, for for me to then say, hey, God has really called us to go to this place um, to start to start a church. And, and listen, I believe that one of the, the the biggest reason that people don't see God's vision for their life become a reality is lack of preparation. And listen, when opportunity comes, we just aren't prepared. The story of David and Goliath is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Um, but what we forget is like we just remember the story of David goes in, he's got five smooth stones, and then he takes the sling, he throws the first one in, boom, it hits Goliath, he falls over dead. David then tells, the funny part of the story is David tells Goliath, I'm going to cut off your head, and he doesn't have a sword, which to me, that's the part that I find hilarious. So then after he hits Goliath and knocks him over dead, then he takes Goliath's sword and cuts his head off with it, which that's got to just add insult to injury, um, is to get you know your head cut off with your own sword. But listen, this is the thing, when David... And Saul are having this exchange. And David says, I'll go fight him. Listen to what he says. He says, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took 
a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose up against me, I caught it by its beard, struck it and killed it. And your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will also deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, I want you to notice something, that David did not go from couch to king. Okay? He went... God had called, because remember, in 1 Samuel 16, God anoints him to be king. And you would think that he would just say, I'm anointed to be king. I've got the pictures to prove it. And that's it. Now he just kind of walks around. He's made his own scepter or something. And he just starts telling people what to do. No, no, no. He got anointed to be king. And then he kept fulfilling the responsibilities that he had as his father's son. And was working in, in the field as a shepherd. And here's the thing. Is that as a young shepherd boy, that, that guy would have been by himself at night. And when a bear or a lion came, listen, here's what could have happened. He could have told his dad, listen, a bear came, a lion came and took one away. But listen, you know, I've kept 95% of the flock. It's still totally safe. You know, this excellent percentage, you know. But instead, he went after that lion and bear and attacked it and killed it and got the sheep, the lamb back. And the thing that's interesting, and, and I mean, because, you know, if he would have let the one go or one gets eaten, I mean, who's going to say anything? The sheep? They're not going to say anything. Well, you know, David's a bad boy. You know, they're not going to say anything. Right? So, so what, 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 what's going to... No, but instead, listen, he recognized that faithfulness begins in the small things. Because Jesus said that the person who is faithful with little is made ruler over much. So the way that you... Act, so listen, the, what David says is the way you actually defeat Goliath is through the preparation along the way. There's got to be the times where you've got to fight the lion and fight the bear that then allows you when the divine appointment comes that you're going to take on Goliath, which will be the thing that propels him into the national spotlight. What happens? Now, he says, I've prepared myself. There's been strategic preparation. He says, because God allowed me to take care of the bear and take care of the lion, and now this Philistine is going to be no different. My friends, strategic preparation is absolutely critical if we're going to see vision become reality. Now, let's talk real practical. How do you turn, um, how do you prepare yourself for God's vision? I put three things there that I want you to write down. Here's the first thing. The first one is, number one, read all that you can. Read all that you can. You turn off the TV and pick up a book. And, you know, like people, I don't know, you know, I was born at night, but not last night. Um, but, and, and so the thing that sometimes people say is, they'll be like, but you know, books are just so expensive. And I'll tell them like, you know, there's these buildings, every town has one where all the books are free. It's called library. The, even the cards, they give those out for free too. You can take the books, read them and bring them back. It's a free for all in there with books and you can just, you know, and, and, and here's, and, and then, or some people will say, well, you know, I just don't like to read. Now, you want to jot this down. Two words, okay? Too bad. All right? Like, just sorry. Too bad. Uh, you know, like, I don't like vegetables, but I'm stuck eating them. All right? It's just like, there's stuff that you don't like to do. The only way you actually start liking to read, right, is by actually reading. That's just, that's the only way. And, um, and, and listen, when you read all, all that you can, here's what you're doing. You're raising your skills 
to the point where as you're preparing yourself for when God opens the door, you're ready to, to just hit the ground running. The second thing is this, is learn from whomever you can. Learn from whomever you can. This is a serious thing that I want you to write down, but write down these two words, ask questions. Listen, the, one, of the thing, one of the characteristics of people who are really, really bright is this, they are very curious people. They're always asking questions. They just want to know how things work. They want to know how someone, if there's someone in your field who is doing well, listen, um, and, and you buy them lunch, you offer them to take and you just like ask them some questions, you take a notebook, you write 10 or 15 questions down, and you just ask them some questions. For the price of a hamburger, you could actually learn a lot of what they know and that will help you to get to where it is that you, where you feel God uh, wants you to be. But listen, and I'll be honest with you, nothing drives me crazier than when I talk to someone and, and I'll, they'll, about whatever topic that we're talking about, and I'll tell them something and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, you know, then yeah, yeah, I know. Like, if you know, why are we even having this conversation? You know, and, and the, it, it, listen, one of the keys to life is to be teachable. Is to be teachable. The person who will not ask someone questions or learn from whoever they can, they have a root problem, which is pride. Because humility is asking questions and saying, listen, I recognize that I don't know everything. And I will humble myself to ask you. Because once again, I believe you can really learn, you can learn something from anyone if you're, if you're willing to ask the right questions. And then here's, here's the last one. And that is be faithful in all that you do. God is not looking for perfection. He's looking for faithfulness. Once again, the whole thing with David, he just was faithful with the lion, faithful with the bear, and then God gave him Goliath, and that was what propelled him into the national spotlight, into what God had ultimately called him to do. God's vision was for him to be king. And it was at that moment, after the season of preparation, that God created the divine appointment of him and Goliath meeting in that battlefield in the Valley of Elah. And that the rest, as they say, is history. Well, look what happens with Nehemiah in verse 11 when he gets to Jerusalem. It says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. I arose in the night and a few men with me. I told no one what God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate, viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates were burned with fire. I went on to the fountain gate to the king's pool and there was no room for the animal to pass uh, under me to pass. So I went up by night to the valley, viewed the wall, and then I turned back and entered the valley gate and returned. And, I, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials or others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And when I told them the hand of my God, which had been upon me and also the king's words and that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hand to this good work. But when Simbalat the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arab, heard it. They laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? And will you rebel against the king? And so I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, 
We, his servants, will rise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. If you pause there and give me your attention, here, here's the third, the third part of turning vision into reality, and that is to put together a godly plan. Put together a, a godly plan. Um, my daughter this morning woke up this morning and said that um, she got dressed and then told my wife, uh, I'm going to dress Xander. So she just literally picked up her brother and carried him to his to his room, took off his pajamas and then start picked out some clothes for him and then started getting him dressed. And then Carrie walked in and, and when she was putting his she had put a she had put a onesie on him um, and then put pants on over that. And then she put his socks on and she was putting his shoes on. And uh, then um, Carrie said, well, um, Mia, did you change his diaper before now, Mia doesn't change diapers, but she, Mia, but don't we have to change this diaper? She says, yes, Mommy. Uh, Mia, did Xander poop? Yes, Mommy. Okay, so usually we change his diaper before we put his clothes on. And she says, well, you can do that after I finish putting his clothes on. And it's like, you know, and, and then we just, you just got to let it go. Um, but I'm telling you that this is kind of what happens to us, is that we, 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 we want to do something good, Right? But we end up kind of doing it in a, in a backwards kind of way. Um, to stay on the topic of David for a moment, who we've been talking about, God had anointed David to be king. The problem with that is there already was a king named Saul. And so Saul, knowing that God had anointed David to be king, said, I'm going to kill David and then keep being king because that's, you know, it's, it's good work if you can find it. Um, and, and so... So David is now on the run from Saul. He goes south of Jerusalem to an area that's called En Gedi, uh, which is quite beautiful near the Dead Sea. And there's all these, you know, mountains and caves in there. Well, David goes into this, uh, goes into a cave because he hears that Saul is there. David goes in with his men and is hiding in this cave. Um, I put this, the, uh, the notes there in your, in your notes, I put the scripture verses. But anyway, something happens and Saul decides that he has to use the restroom. In fact, in, in the King James, in this, it says that he had to attend to his needs, which is a very nice Bible way of saying he had to use the restroom. And so he goes into one of the caves. Now, as, you know, things would have it, the cave that he goes into just so happens to be the cave that David and his men are hiding in. Now, first of all, how awkward is that? Imagine, guys, you go into the, you walk into a restroom, you go into the stall, and there's 50 guys in there you don't realize it. That's, just, that's weird. But anyway, so he goes in there, and there's all these guys there, and they say, Shh, you know, the king, so the king is there using the restroom, and David comes and he just takes some of, he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe, and then what happens is, is that he says, um, then it's like he's, con the Bible says he's conscience stricken, because he's like, oh man, well, I can't believe I did that. And he tells the men that they can't kill Saul while he's using the restroom, and, and, and there's like this, argument that ensues like don't you realize this is what god has done that he's put your, the, your enemy right here in like the most vulnerable position ever to then for you to just you know put him you know put your sword through him and that'll be the end of it and then you'll be king and it's like well don't you see that there's a, a there's a plan here and yet david realizes that this is a plan but it's not a godly plan and well why is that because i mean if he decides to kill saul in this way he will spend the rest of his life wondering, did God make me king or did I make myself king? And he will spend the rest of his life looking over his shoulder because when uh, kings that usually 
rise to power by assassination tend to die by assassination. And so he decides not to do it. And, and then the other part is, is that, is that the story you want to tell your kids? Grandpa, how did you become king? Well, your grandfather became number one while the other guy was going number two. Uh, that's just awkward. And, uh, and so now the, 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 the thing becomes this, right? Nehemiah, in the verses that we read, he goes out, and if, if you follow a map, he goes in counterclockwise fashion and goes all the way around the city of Jerusalem and sees and says, this, this gate has this much damage, this part of the wall has this much damage, this well has this much damage, and, we're gonna, and he assesses the whole situation, and then he puts together a plan. And then he talks to the people and motivates them and says, hey, let's not be a reproach anymore. Let's rise up and build. He tells them all that had happened with the king. All the background, he says, listen, this, 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 this moment came, and now God, this is the moment that God has, has given us. But I want you to notice something that's really important. Nehemiah is a person that is very driven, but he's not impatient. And there's a difference between the two. You, you, you can be very, very driven, and that's a good thing, but not to the point of impatience. Because nothing good happens because we're impatient and we just refuse to wait. In fact, one of the, the marks of the Spirit of God being in our lives, what we would call the fruit of the Spirit, is the fact that we are willing to be patient. Um, the challenge that all of us face is the tension of wanting to see vision become reality, but then saying, am I willing to wait to do it God's way? It's the tension that David faced. It's the tension that Nehemiah faced. And inevitably, it will be the tension that you and I face as well. Because we can't reject the commands of God and still expect the blessings of God. We can't expect the blessing of a godly relationship if we don't do it God's way. We can't expect the blessing of God's financial provision if we don't honor God with our finances. We can't expect the blessing of godly children if we don't train them up in the way they should go according to the Word of God. You see, here's, but yet here's what, what, what some of us will do sometimes, is that we'll do things our own way, and then we will blame God for the bad results. And that, that is neither fair nor realistic. Here's what God blesses. And here's how God turns vision into reality. Is when we do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. In, um, in Micah chapter 6, he says it this way. That he's shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? That to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Do you want to see your vision, the vision that God has given you for your life, become a reality? Then listen, then walk with Him. Let Him set the pace. Don't run ahead. Don't veer off course. Don't say, oh, I've got a shortcut that's going to be a lot better than this. Instead, let Him be the shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And He is the shepherd that is leading your life. So you don't have to run ahead. Our goal is this, is to hear His voice and go where he wants us to. Because listen, here, here's, here's the reality of it. Is that no one wants to see God's vision become part of your life more than Him. God wants His vision for your life more than you even want it for yourself. As hard as that might seem. But listen, the only way that it becomes God's vision for our lives is if we do it God's way. And so my friends, you look for divine appointments. You strategically plan and you prepare yourself and you prepare for when God does open the door, 
and I'm walking with him so closely that I'm going to hear it when he speaks to me. When he starts opening these things to, to make it happen, then I'm going to hit the ground running, which is what we see. And so as God is revealing this vision for Nehemiah's life and his future, is the very same thing that God wants to do for you, for me, in our future. To see the vision that he's given to us become a reality. Let's pray together. And Lord, thank you so much. Thank you that you don't just leave us to figure it out for ourselves. Instead, you divinely work behind the scenes to create circumstances that we just know that it's you. And at the same time, you call us to participate with you. So God, we're trusting in you, but at the same time, we're preparing ourselves as proof that we're trusting you. So Lord, may the vision that you have for us, God, make it clear that we might follow, that we might take steps that turn it into reality. In Jesus' name, amen.